Well, good morning, everyone. I bet you didn't realize when you came in this morning you were going to get two sermons this morning. <laughs> Once the mic is in that man's hand, look out. So anyway, I want to give a warm welcome to everyone who is here today and those who are online. It's uh, great to have you with us. Um, you know, over the last six months, a uh, couple times, Clayton from up front has uh, kind of pointed to me and said, you know, this man used to teach on cessationism and now obviously is living the spirit-filled life. And, and so I had several people come up to me and say, well, what happened? How did you go from one place to the other? And uh, so I thought this morning I'd actually present to you what that journey was like, how I went from somebody who not only rejected the gifts, but came to be someone who embraces them and lives the spirit-filled life. I, I guess, as Clayton was mentioning earlier, I was kind of wondering, you know, it was a bit of a heavy this morning, but yet, it was interesting, you were mentioning being a mouthpiece for the lies. I was a mouthpiece for the lies. So my hope this morning is for those of you who are online and those who are here in the room who really don't believe that the gifts are for today, that you'll have an open mind and that you would ask God to give you a new perspective on the matter. And for those of you who are open to the concepts and and truly living the Spirit-filled life, I pray that this morning you will get a scriptural basis that you can use when you are talking to somebody who says, oh, that's not for today. So, by way of introduction, I'm going to give just a fairly brief overview of my spiritual journey, um, starting uh, really when I was very young. We, uh, we went to, I guess what you would call a mainline denominational church, and uh, unfortunately that particular church organization became more and more and more liberal as time went on, to the point where towards the end of my wife and I's time there, when we'd gotten married and you know, joined, you know, with the local body of that church, they were actually saying things like, well, the Bible's just a bunch of fanciful stories, but it really didn't happen that way, which, and I know this is going to sound crazy, I was in leadership in that church at the time, I was in what would effectively be like an elder board of that church, but I actually wasn't saved. I didn't really understand that at the time, I figured, hey, you go to church, hey, you're all good. But even in my unsaved mind, I knew there was something wrong <laughs> with that point of view, that it was just a bunch of stories. So one day back in 1995, I was driving home from work, and I accidentally tuned the radio to a Christian radio program. Normally, it would have been hard rock, sports, you name it. But this, for whatever reason, I miscued and, and hit on WAVA. And there was a preacher on the radio, and he gave a clear presentation of the gospel and for the first time in my life, I heard it, and I was shocked. I had never heard that before. I'd never heard it in its true form, or at the very least, I did not have ears to hear up until that moment in time. So I went home, and I searched the scriptures because this was fascinating to me. It was so radically different than what I had learned up to that point in my life. I, uh, one of the things he said was, you know, you know, look at John, look at Romans, look at Galatians, you know. And by golly, I did. I read all three of those books, and I tried to wrap my mind around this new point of view. About a month later, a friend of mine at work invited me to come with him to what was then the first Promise Keepers event in downtown Washington at RFK Stadium. Some of you remember that huge gathering, 55,000-plus men going there to seek God. Well, I wasn't entirely sure what that would mean or what that would be like, but I knew I had to go. And so on May 25th, 1995, I went to Promise Keepers. I heard the gospel again in its purest, clearest form, and I stood up and I gave my life to Jesus. And uh, thanks. I give him all the glory. So that changed everything in my life. It changed everything in our lives. My wife actually got saved like about a week later, totally independently, totally different situation, but we both came to the Lord at the same time, which was absolutely wonderful. So needless to say, we knew it was time to leave the church that we were in. Um, many of our neighbors went to a Bible church in that town, and so, you know, we went there, and it was great. 
Um, I spent my commutes going to and from work, no longer listening to the rock, no longer listening to the sports, but tuning into you know, the Christian radio programs. I was soaking up everything that I possibly could. I'm reading the Bible, I'm listening to all these different you know, great preachers on the air. But one of the guys I listened to was the one who gave the gospel the first time. Obviously, I was very much into this guy. He was the one who you know, brought it all forth for me. But interestingly enough, he held a, a view that was very interesting. He said that the gifts of the Spirit were not for today. In fact, he said that you know, while God could move through people today, he doesn't do that anymore. That, that's long gone. And that is the view known as cessationism. That means that the gifts of the Spirit have truly vanished. They're no longer manifest on the earth. And about the time that the last apostle died, or certainly by the time that the canon of Scripture was complete, that was it. And, you know, we have 66 books of the Bible. We don't need the Holy Spirit to be moving in power. And that was the end of it. Well, so between various radio program hosts and the pastor of the church we were in, I quickly learned to dismiss the gifts completely. They were nothing more at that point in my mind. This was the deception I was given. It was nothing more than either a carnal, fleshly display by somebody who just wants some attention, or perhaps it was even a, someone who was demonically influenced and they were actually, as we would call it today, manifesting or something else, where it was a false, fake sign and wonder, that sort of thing. So, in any event, I became a student of that cessationist school of thought. And uh, I was so convinced of it that over time I began teaching classes in it. I actually had a, a Christian website that I had built, and one of the pages was devoted to making absolutely sure you wrung that crazy idea out of your head that the gifts were for today. So, some of you online today, or some of you in the room, may actually adhere to that cessationist view, and, and I get it. I was there myself, but I got to say, if you come to free life for any period of time, I don't know how you can hold on to that, because the Spirit of God moves in power in this place all the time. I don't know how you can do it. But there are others here in the sanctuary who perhaps you were born into, or certainly born again into, a church that believes in the gifts of the Spirit. Might call it charismatic, whatever. Uh, interestingly enough, Josh this morning, he was asking a little bit about the sermon. I mentioned this, and he said, yeah, I remember when Clayton said that you were a cessationist and moved to Spirit-filled, and he said, I went home, I had, to, I had to look up what is a cessationist, because he'd never known it, never heard of such a thing in his life. He grew up into this. It's just hard to fathom if you've grown up into a church like this. So to understand... What changed with me, you have to understand the mindset of a cessationist. So we're going to look at what actually drives a person to buy into that doctrine or theology or, or lie, frankly. And really, there are two different ways that someone really kind of falls into that. First is by some unfortunate misreading of Scripture. And I'm actually going to go through a few of those. And then there's also a more personal Thing that goes on in somebody who's a cessationist, and I'm going to talk to you about that as well, okay? But the reality is that the gifts did not cease, <coughs> excuse me, with uh, the close of the canon of Scripture or the death of the last apostle. It is a very much an important and valuable part of the lives of Christians in the 21st century. So I'm going to share a couple events that went on in my life that simply demanded that I reconsider that position. So let's take a look first at the cessationist arguments. So in the interest of time, I'm just going to cover a couple of them because, frankly, what is the point in uh, you know, trying to teach something about error? It's really not helpful. We're here to, to learn about truth. But what's going to happen is, I hope, that as I bring up each one of the, the scriptures that a cessationist will use, I will then flip the script and say, and this is why that's wrong. So that when you talk to a cessationist, you'll be equipped to say, well, think about it this way. And perhaps that'll help you when you're having that conversation. Now, granted, it's not always about head knowledge. I totally get that. 
A demonstration of the power of, of God is certainly going to put a lot of doubt in the mind of a cessationist. So let's start off with a few scriptures. The first we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we start in verse 8. It's a very familiar passage, particularly if you've ever been to a, a wedding. You know, the first part of it is talking about, you know, love, love, love. Well, starting in verse 8, it says, Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So the word translated cease in the Greek is katergia, which simply in that context means be done away with or to cease of itself. The argument goes that the gifts of tongue, or the gift of tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge, etc., healing, were all given to authenticate the gospel because the scriptures were incomplete, and that once we had the 66 books of the Bible, God didn't need for the signed gifts, as they're called, to be resident on the earth. Okay, because we had the perfect Bible, it's available to everybody. So signed gifts, they're gone. Cessationists will also tie those verses to Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. And in Revelation 22, it says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So again, I have to say, these verses in Revelation are written to prove, you know, or at least the, the cessationists will say, these verses in Revelation are proving that all this prophecy, stop it, don't do it. Because if you do, you are very clearly going against the word of God, and it's not of God if that's what you're doing. Okay? Um, it's certainly a warning not to do a forth-telling type of prophecy. So let's talk about that point of view for a minute. This kind of reasoning is what I believe is an overreach of the principle of sola scriptura, which is the doctrine that states that the Bible, that scripture, uh, is the sole infallible source of authority for Christian faith and daily life. Hence the phrase, by scripture alone, in English. Extra-biblical books and teachings and, and, and other things are fallible and cannot be trusted as being true, absolute truth. That's what Sola Scriptura tells us. Unfortunately, that's being misapplied here. Certainly, it is true that that's why you want to test prophecies in light of Scripture. Because the Scripture will always be the plumb line. It will always be the source of truth. Always test prophecy. So when you examine these verses in Revelation chapter 22 without the preconceived agenda of, oh, the gifts are not for today, it's talking about that, then we realize that the Apostle John who wrote Revelation was under the power of the Holy Spirit. He was telling us, don't try and take away from or add to the prophecies of the end times. Don't be coming up with some other thing that's going to happen at that point. Don't take away and say, well, that's not going to happen. That's the warning John is giving us. He is not trying to tell us that prophecy is over. That was far, far from what he's saying. So like I said a moment ago, prophecies are to be tested in light of Scripture. And if they don't line up, ignore them. Let me give you a very simple, common example that most people use when they're trying to show you how this works. Let's say, for example, somebody comes up to you and prophesies over you. You are to leave your wife. You are to marry this person over here. And uh, you'll be happily, you know, you'll live happily ever after. We know that that's not true because we know God's word is very clear about marriage and divorce. So throw that one out. So. When Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians 13.10 about how when the perfect comes and that which is in part will be done away, 
the correct interpretation of that verse is that the perfection is actually talking about the second coming of Christ. Okay? It is not the complete writing of the book of, of the Bible. Some biblical scholars, you know, well, actually, before I even say that, how do we know this? Don't take my word for it. The answer is actually found in verse 12, and I'm not sure that I told you guys back there that verse 12 would be one of my scriptures, so apologies in advance. But how do we know this? In verse 12, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face we see Jesus. This is not in the verse. I don't know oh, good job, guys. We see Jesus in the Bible today. That's what we see. We see him in the Bible, and we hear his voice. But one day, we will see him face to face. And when we see him again, all this will really no longer matter. And that's why this is really talking about his second coming. Now, I will tell you, there are some scholars, and it's not, it's not that one view is better or worse than the other. There are some scholars that will tell you that you know, the perfection being described here is actually our perfection. When we rise again and we have glorified bodies and, and we are effectively perfect. It doesn't really matter which of these two views you ascribe to. One thing is certain, and that is that this verse was not intended to talk about the completion of the Bible. All right, so let's move on. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, and pretty much anyone who knows me knows this, is Acts 14.3. A cessationist actually looks at Acts 14.3 through a very different lens than someone who believes that the gifts are for today. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but Acts 14.3 is speaking about Paul and Barnabas, and it states that God was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, a cessationist would say that, well, today, the Holy Spirit quickens the heart of the unbeliever when they hear the gospel, so they don't need sign gifts. And the Holy Spirit does do that. But may I ask, did he not quicken the hearts of unbelievers in the first century? Where do we see in the Bible that such a thing suddenly would spring up or that it never existed? We don't see that. Cessationalists will tell you that it was only the apostles and perhaps the rest of the 120 in the upper room who had the the fire on their head and and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. They're the only ones who got, you know, the gifts of the Spirit. So when they died, the gifts died with them. In reality, there's several examples in the books of Acts where the laying on of hands by the apostles resulted in the baptism of the Spirit for believers being activated or bestowed those sign gifts on these new believers. Let's take a look at one of the really good examples in Acts 19, verses 1 through 6. Again, I'm going to paraphrase what's going on here, but uh, you will see the scriptures behind you. So here in Acts 19, we find Paul talking to about a dozen um, disciples uh, living in the city of Ephesus. Now, you've got to remember, Ephesus is about a thousand miles, literally a thousand miles from Jerusalem. These were new believers, effectively, who actually had a somewhat limited understanding of what was going on. Because Paul talked to them and said, you know, so did they receive the Holy Spirit when they believed? And they replied, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. They had only received a baptism of repentance, meaning John the Baptist's baptism. And Paul told them that they needed to believe in the name of Jesus. And then They received that, and they were baptized into the name of Jesus. Then Paul laid hands on these likely Gentile believers living in Ephesus. And the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Very clearly, these were not the 120 in the upper room in Jerusalem waiting for the coming Holy Spirit. So these are brand new new believers. Cessationists who believe that only apostles have the, the sign gifts... They have absolutely no defense against this scripture. So the bottom line is, for every scripture that can be raised, there's a compelling counter-argument that proves that the the cessationist viewpoint simply is incorrect. So we have to ask ourselves, what else drives them? What else makes a cessationist believe this doctrine? 
Well, the truth of the matter is, they will say one thing, but I truly believe it's another, and I can tell you from personal experience. They will tell you the reason they don't believe it is because they don't see it. They look around. They don't see sign gifts in operation in their church and whatever, but I'll give you the dirty little secret. It's because they've never experienced it. They are Bible-believing Christians. They are reading the Word every day. They're spiritual people. So why don't they experience it? What, if it were real, certainly they would have those gifts. So how might you ask, did I go from being that guy to being someone who puts aside those cessationist articles and, and, and teachings and begins to embrace the Spirit-filled life? Well, there were two events in my life that really set the stage for me having to completely think differently, to turn from that doctrine. And the first was an encounter at work with a spirit-filled Christian. He also happened to be a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, for those of you who don't know, Dallas, or DTS as it's usually abbreviated, is truly one of the premier seminaries in the United States. Some of their more famous graduates you probably heard of, Chuck Swindoll, Tony Evans, David Jeremiah, J. Fernand McGee. You know, there, there's so many. But anyway, so this guy in our contracts department um, was a Christian, DTS graduate. Of course, then I was, you know, bowing before his great knowledge. And uh, anyway, we spoke a lot, like at lunchtime and, and so forth, about Jesus and about the Bible and other spiritual matters. And one day we were complaining, lamenting, you name it, about the fact that uh, the government, our customer at this defense contractor, had set an incredibly tight uh, deadline for a proposal that we were working on. There was absolutely no way we would be able to complete this thing in time. We needed a two-week extension or we simply were not going to make it. But unfortunately, the government had said on multiple occasions there will be no extensions we need this proposal in from all you contractors on this date, and that's it. And so my friend said, you know, we should just pray and ask God to give us a two-week extension so we can actually finish this and turn it in on time. I agreed with him, but I'll be honest. I didn't have a whole lot of faith that God really cared about proposal submissions and would do anything about it. So we started to pray. And first of all, he prayed with authority, an authority I had never heard before, just absolutely going after it. And then I felt something rising up in me, like, I have never heard prayer like this before. And it struck a really deep chord in me. But then the craziest thing happened. <laughs> he began to pray in another language. And I was thinking, no way! I thought, first, my first thought was, okay, he was born in another country, and he just reverts to that when he prays sometimes. Maybe he doesn't have the words. I don't know. But maybe he's just crazy. Or, or, or maybe he's pretending to pray in tongues. I mean, after all, it's not real, right? So at the same time that I wanted to absolutely get out of there, I also wanted to learn a little bit more about what was going on. Now, now what language was that? Yeah. So when he was done praying, I said that, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on, and, and, and what, what's that? And, and, you know, he said, well, I heard God speak very clearly to me that he was going to give us the two-week extension. And I was like, now nah, I know this dude's crazy. You know, he said praying in tongues was a powerful tool to move mountains. I knew he was crazy. But God spoke to him about a proposal extension? Well, don't you know that the very next day, two-week extension. That was exactly what we prayed for. And I was like, okay, that's different. Now I was intrigued. The little hook was starting to, to get set. So we spent a number of lunch hours after that where he told me about his spiritual journey from probably the, the, the seminary that brings the Holy Spirit out of you more than any other in this country, you know, and yet, how he became to be spirit-filled. won't go into his story. This is my story today. So, <laughs> so anyway, after this, I was in kind of a pickle because 
I've always been one to follow my head, follow logic, follow reason. I'd never actually met a charismatic person before. I'd never actually experienced somebody really praying in tongues. I thought it was just all crazy stuff. So that had always made it easy for me to denounce that belief, but now I've been confronted with the authentic, and it was a whole different ballgame. Now I had something to think about. So that leads me to the second event that happened in my life. And I, and I got to be honest, I don't share this. I really don't. I have to know you for a long time before I tell you this story because it's, it's pretty crazy. And I'm a little bit concerned about putting this online <laughs> because it's that crazy. Um, but I'm, I'm, I felt the Lord said share this, so I'm going to share it. So a few months later, after this event with the guy at work, um, my wife and I had bought some land out here in Loudoun County, and we were starting to build a house. And it was going to be, you know, six, seven months before the house was built. Um, so we sold our old house and moved into a rental house. And little did we know that the previous occupants of that house were deeply into the occult, witchcraft, you name it. They were really into it. And for all intents and purposes, we had moved into a haunted house. And I'm not going to tell you everything that happened, but I'll give you four examples, and the fourth one is the one that really threw me for a loop. So the first one, um, Trace will verify this. She'll verify all of it, but, you know, she would put on praise music, for example, at home. She'd be in the kitchen or in the bedroom or somewhere, and it's not always the same device, so it's not like, oh, it was that plug. But she'd put on praise music. Smoke alarm would go off in the house and just kind of drown it out. That was really odd and we couldn't figure that out we just gotten this little dog jake and jake would be standing just looking around all of a sudden he'd look up in a corner and he'd stare at it and all of a sudden he'd like he'd start growling and barking at just different spots like oh, over there and you're like what is wrong with this dog you know <laughs> well we know what's wrong with that dog he's seeing something that we're not the third thing that happened this is when it started getting really real um some of our children. We have, we have four now. We only had uh, three at the time. Got to count and figure out where we were in, in time. But our oldest son one day was about to go up the stairs, and he just stops, and he looks up the stairs, and he turns and says, there's a demon staring at me. It's like a little guy with red eyes. Then we knew we had serious problems in this house, as if we hadn't figured that out already. That one, that one kind of put it to rest, or so I thought. The next one is the worst, and this is the one that I never, ever tell people. It's bad enough to share those three. This one's the worst. One night, I had, Trace was in bed. She'd already fallen asleep. I came to bed a little later, and I'm lying there, and I'm talking just a couple minutes. And I take a good hour to go to sleep. I'm not one of those people who hit the pillow. No, that's not me. So I'd just gotten into bed. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about stuff, and I, I look towards the door, which is kind of over here, and I see this black shape coming into the room, and it's just kind of coming towards me, and I'm lying in the bed, and the thing comes and starts resting on top of me. Resting would be the nice word. Pushing was the right word. I literally felt my body going down into the mattress. This was not, this was not some little dream going on because I was half awake, half asleep. No, I had just gotten there, and this was happening. I tried to cry out. Couldn't get a word out of my mouth. I tried to go, Trace, and I, all I got was, Nothing. Nothing was working. And it was like squeezing the life out of me. I couldn't breathe. I'm getting pressed. Finally, and in my head, I'm going, God, you got to help me. I don't know what this thing is, but you got to help me. And finally, it just kind of lifts off and goes back out the door. Well, we did everything, as poor little Bible church believers knew how to do, which was not a whole lot. We really weren't equipped to handle something like this at all. Wish we'd known you then, Ken. So we were like deer in the headlights. So we knew we couldn't tell our pastor because he would think we were just flat out nuts. I think we'd probably have to leave. So we, put, we did the best we knew to do. So we put some oil on the door above the windows, and we prayed and asked God for, for protection. But I'll be honest, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we were praying out of a place of fear. We, didn't, we had zero authority. We had zero actually really even belief that, okay, now they're gone. We didn't have the faith for it. I'm just being real. 
Have you, have you guys seen the, the Chosen? Anybody? Yeah. Okay. You gotta, if you haven't watched that series, get on it. It's amazing. Anyway, the very first episode. Remember when, I think it's Nicodemus, yeah? Nicodemus is, he goes in with his little censer of incense and goes to see Mary Magdalene and he's going in to supposedly cast out a demon. The man has zero authority and he's got a whole lot of fear. And he starts talking to her and starts you know, trying to say something that sounded fancy and nice. But Mary just kind of looks up at him and these like multiple voices come out of her saying, you don't scare us. Well, he beat feet out of there because he knew he had no authority. They knew he had no authority. And that was kind of it. Well, that's kind of what it was like for us. So with all that was going on in that house, as our new house was being built, we buried a Bible in the cement foundation of the church because we were starting off on the right foot on the next house. So anyway... Having come through those two situations, you know, again, I did what any good Bible church person would do. I went back to the scriptures to figure out what on earth have I been missing. Something is just not lining up well here in this world. The way I looked at it, if the devil had that much power, I know God has more authority. He's got more power. And that maybe there is a scriptural basis for, you know, the gifts maybe being active today. And Jesus cast out demons so maybe he would help us do that too. So I looked to see if there were any old New Testament scriptures that supported the perpetuity of the spiritual gifts because the last thing I wanted to do was ask for something that wasn't scripturally based, that wasn't of God, and invite something demonic into my own life, which of course was one of the great accusations of cessationists against the manifestation of the death. Oh, it's of the devil. So I came at this with an open mind for the first time in my life. And as I read the scriptures, I began to realize that the gifts were not only promised to believers, but were commanded. So let's start with the ministry of Jesus, for whom obviously the casting out of demons and healing played a critical role. So let's look at Matthew 4.23 for a moment. I'm going to grab some water while you are turning. So... Matthew 4.23 said that Jesus went through all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all of Syria and they brought him all the sick and those that were afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Again, in Matthew 10, we see Jesus sending out the 12, and he commands them, beginning in verse 5, Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. He commands us in these verses to move in the power of the Spirit. He says, go, preach, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out the demons. He's commanding us to do this. Did that commandment ever go away? No. There are other examples in Mark, Mark 6, Luke 9, Luke 10, all kinds of places that I don't have time to go into this morning. They clearly demonstrate that the proclaiming of the kingdom went part and parcel with the demonstration of the power of God through healing, casting out demons, and other signs and wonders. And that was the first time I started seeing Acts 14.3 in a whole new light. So these weren't random acts of power to demonstrate, you know, that people were in the presence of the kingdom of God, where God's authority is uncontested. These were acts of power that proved that what was being said was true. You could rely on it. It was real. And people understood and became saved. So when Jesus ascended into heaven, there's not a single scripture that even alludes to the notion that the kingdom of God had somehow been removed from the earth. Quite the contrary, as we know from uh, Clayton's series on Acts and Origins, which I'm not sure if he's done with yet. Hopefully not. Thank you. Good. Uh, in Acts chapters 1 and 2, we know that the disciples were told in Acts 1.8 that they would receive power 
when the Holy Spirit came on them, and they would be witnesses for Jesus. The message of the gospel continues to be preached today, and it will be preached throughout the world to the very end until Jesus returns. He constantly tied the demonstration of the power of God with preaching about the kingdom. He refused to perform abstract acts of power. Two examples. When the devil said, hey, you're hungry, turn these rocks into bread. No. Pilate said to him, why don't you send that angelic army here to save you from what's coming? No. That's not tied to preaching the gospel in any way, preaching about the kingdom. Those would have been just abstract displays of power. So after Jesus' ministry on the earth, let's move back into the book of Acts. So we're time and again, the very real and present nature of the kingdom was taught and preached. You can look at some of these scriptures on your own time, but if you look at Acts 8.12 and 8.25, you'll see this. And even the very last verse in the book of Acts, when Paul is imprisoned in his own home in Rome, what it says there is that he was preaching the kingdom of God. He never stopped until his dying day. That's what Paul did. In 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul talks about the kingdom of God not being something in the past, not in the future, but in the very present tense when he says the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. So, what's the point of that? We're looking for the full manifestation of the kingdom. And so now, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, as adopted sons and daughters, we are heirs to that very kingdom of God. It isn't some future kingdom that we're looking forward to. It is the very real and present kingdom here and now. It is the time where God has broken into space and time here on earth and where the rule and reign of God touches the physical world. And when that happens, we see signs and wonders. We see miracles of healing. We see tongues. We see prophecies. The gifts of God are made manifest. So, in the book of John, Jesus said that he can only do what he sees the Father doing. So when Jesus went around doing what he saw the Father doing, we didn't see him making people sick. We saw him healing people. In chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 of, of the Gospel of John, he writes that uh, John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus, he says, John bore witness of him, meaning Jesus, and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, meaning Jesus, is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. So what does it mean when he says, of his fullness we have all received? This is referring to pretty much every attribute of Jesus we can think of. It's talking about the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his mercy, the fullness of his compassion, and the fullness of the power of the Spirit that flowed from him through his humanity and touched the world around him. It's also true that when Jesus healed, it was not simply because he was preaching the gospel or preaching about the kingdom. Rather, it was a result of divine compassion. As an example, in Matthew 14, 14, it tells us that he had compassion on the people and healed them. If Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that is exactly what the Word tells us, and if his healings reflected the will and compassion of the Father back then, I challenge you to show me where that would not be true today. Would God not be willing to heal you today? Should you not have full expectation of healing? Should you not have full expectation that when you feel the Lord prompting you to pray for healing for someone, that he's going to move and act? He will. There was a sermon Dwayne did, I don't know, 12 years ago, give or take. It's one of my all-time favorite sermons in my entire life, and it was about healing. And it was a defense of Isaiah 53. And he went through it a little bit like a lawyer, but also a man filled with the Spirit. And he started out saying, if you are believing you know, that you know, 
we were, you aren't able to receive healing for some reason, or you're just not going to get your healing, you're believing a lie. And that's exactly right. You are believing a lie. God heals today. So Jesus told us in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in, his, in my name, I will do it. Did you notice that Jesus says, whoever believes in me, he will do the works that are greater than I? Does he say the apostles? No. He says a whoever. You're a whoever. I'm a whoever. That's who we are. And that's what we need to believe. No one, excuse me, therefore, like all the believers in Acts who saw mass conversions, healings, and other miracles, we who believe should be absolutely, positively expectant to see and do the acts, the miracles, the healings that Jesus did. There's nowhere that that's been canceled or nullified, except, of course, when he comes again. So let's look at it from another standpoint, and that's the standpoint of God's dunamis power, as it's called in the Greek. We can look at a couple of verses very quickly in Luke that demonstrate this. Luke often refers to the dunamis of God, and he says in Luke 135, when an angel answered Mary, who was asking how she could possibly be pregnant if she'd never been with a man, and the angel replied that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and the power of the Most High God, power being the dunamis power of the Most High God, would overshadow her, and thus the Holy One who is to be born would be called the Son of God. That creative miracle was a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit when Mary conceived Jesus. When Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, he told them in chapter 2, verse 4, that his speech and preaching were not with persuasive words or human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Remember before when I said Jesus didn't demonstrate frivolous acts of, of power for God? The same was true of Paul. The demonstration of the power of God was tied to the preaching of the gospel. He reinforces this in verse 5, where he implores the Corinthians not to place their faith in the mere words and wisdom of man, but in the power of God. So again, we must ask ourselves, when did this dunamis power change or end? I submit to you that it has not. In Romans 1.16, we're told that the gospel is the power of God, the dunamis power of God unto salvation. How can we believe that this dunamis power in salvation is still t today present among us, but yet all the other power of God that we see in the supernatural gifts has ended? It creates a cognitive dissonance in me that I just can't live with. So faced with this overwhelming scriptural evidence, I had no choice but to abandon my cessationist views. I had to concede that the gifts really were for today, and so I began to ask God to give me the baptism of the Spirit. Well, I'd like to tell you that about five seconds later, I was praying in tongues or prophesying over everybody I knew, but that didn't happen. I uh, look, look back on it now, and I'll be honest, I realized that my heart was wrong at that point. I'm just being real. I really, the desire of my heart was to experience the gifts. It wasn't because I wanted to receive so I could give away. It was something that probably God in his grace, he knew it would ruin me if he'd actually given me those gifts and I just marched around and done things. You know, it would have been for me. It wouldn't have been for him. And he, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Follow me, kids. Yeah. So, so until my heart changed, nothing happened. And so at one point, I'm telling you, it was about a year later. And I'd had famous guys like Randy Clark and others lay hands on me. Nothing. And so I was thinking, you know, this is not for me. I still think it's real, but not for this guy. So I had fully given up on it. And one evening, when I was just worshiping God, I was fully surrendered to him. I was singing and worshiping him with all my heart. And just, just loving on him. And it was, interestingly enough, it was a song that ties together 
a real evangelistic heart for people with giving high praise and glory to God. As I was suddenly, as I was singing, I suddenly felt tongues rising up and coming out of me. I began to sing and praise God in a brand new language, and tears were like streaming down my face, and I encountered God in an entirely different level than I ever had the rest of my life. Probably a year later, we visited Free Life Church because we were hungering for more of God. We'd heard that this church had the rather unusual, at least for all of us cessationists around here, uh, the unusual belief that the Christian life was equally based in the Spirit and the Word, like two wings on an airplane. Without both wings, you can't fly. And so, all of our Christian life, we'd majored on the Word. But here, we came to learn more about the Spirit. So, under Ken, and then later Clayton, we learned about the Spirit-filled life. My wife, she became an incredible minister in deliverance, discerning of spirits. Uh, Myself, I have that, but to a lesser degree. You need something cast out right away? Go see my wife. The phrase, look at me, if you ever hear that, you know you got something going on. (laughs) So, you know, I was no longer powerless after this when confronted with the demonic. And I have been confronted with the demonic since then. When we'd internalized and had complete faith and understanding in the authority we have in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working through us, we had that victory in that realm every time. They don't win. We have the victory. So, So from time to time, this is certainly not normative for me, but from time to time I have moved in healing, mostly headaches and hurt shoulders, but not all hurt shoulders. I know I've prayed for a few and it doesn't come, but you know, God moves in mysterious ways. I don't know why it doesn't happen every time. None of us do. We all wonder, why didn't that person get healed? But this one did. I don't know. I wish I could tell you I did. When it comes to prophecies, if you've known me for a very long time, you know I don't give prophecies unless I am 1,000% sure it came from God. I still have this little Old Testament mindset that says, if you're not 100% accurate, you should be stoned. <laughs> That's what it says. If you, were, if you were an Old Testament prophet and you gave a bad word, you were deserving of stoning. So I take that very seriously. <laughs> and I have given a few prophecies. Clayton knows a couple of them. <laughs> they've been directly to him. And so far, they've been good. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> so, so, you know, when we're challenged with a really challenging issue or a problem, praying tongues is now one of the first lines of defense. And when it comes time to call in the big guns, that's when it's time for prayer and fasting. There's nothing like it. If you want... To move mountains, I encourage you to pray and fast. So I'm going to close with a very recent example of this, and it's going to be interesting and challenging to see if I can get all the way through this. So it's been the long-term desire of our hearts, my wife and I, to live on the coast. 30 years probably. And uh, COVID made a very interesting thing happen at work. I've worked for effectively the same company for 33 years, a couple acquisitions along the way, but it's basically been the same company. Um, And frankly, all the different versions of this company have said the same thing. We don't like work from home. Okay. But because of COVID, we've been working from home for the better part of six months or more now, and it's worked perfectly. And the management's starting to kind of see that, but they don't like it, but they kind of see it. And... um, You know, we assumed that when I retire, Lord willing, in about six years, that's when we would, you know, pack it in and and move to the beach. So we realized this is all going pretty well. So we prayed about it a little bit and felt that God was kind of in it. 
So we, I went to my boss and I asked if we could do this. And it was not a mild no, it was a violent no. He almost started shouting at me. It, it, honestly, it took my breath away. I thought, what have I done? Because you know, this is a guy from the new acquiring company. I thought, well, now I've blown this. You know, I'm, I'm a dead man. Um, so the door was shut tight as a drum. He didn't like it. His boss, the CFO, didn't like it. There, this, was, this dream just got burned to the ground. But then I remembered um, a missionary that I had listened to at church many years ago. And he talked about the death of a dream. And he talked about sometimes when dreams die and everything that you know to do and it's just burned to the ground, that's when God steps in. That's when you have to lay down everything that's you and you have to depend on him. So Trace and I talked and I told her about that missionary and what he'd said and how he had wanted to go into the mission field and everything went completely off. So they began to pray and fast, and then God moved mountains, and then they were out in the field doing what God had called them to do. So it was time to contend in the spirit realm for what we believe God had for us. We weren't able to do it on our own, that was for sure. I, I clearly muffed that up myself. So we began to pray and fast. Every day that there was any kind of a meeting in the company about, you know, like the leadership team was thinking about, you know, how are we going to come back to the office, you know, as a company. This is a big company. This is like... 30 plus thousand employees. You know, how are we going to do this? And, and, and you know, are we going to let people work from home indefinitely and forever and so forth? We're going to have more remote, shut buildings down. All that. Meanwhile, we're praying and fasting. Every time we know one of those is going on, we're praying and fasting, praying and fasting. Finally, two weeks ago, everything shifted. And my boss, who could not have been much more dead set against me, or against it, he asked me, why don't you give me a plan of how you'd make this work? So I gave him a plan, and man, I was praying and fasting over that plan as I'm doing it. And uh, I give it to him, he goes, this is very interesting. I, I could see how this could work. So he presented it to the CFO. And then um, we're praying and fasting over that meeting. And then sure enough, they've allowed it. And now, this Friday, our house goes on the market, and by the end of the year, we're going to be moving. So... We, we're very excited to see what God has for us in South Carolina, but there is, I don't know how I'm going to leave this church. I don't. Our hearts will be tied here forever. They really will. I didn't want to do that. So, in closing, I trust that you have a new appreciation of how God's word affirms what we already kind of know for those who have received the baptism of the Spirit, what we know, and that's that the gifts are absolutely available today. If you're here and you've never been baptized in the Spirit, I would encourage you to come up front. We have a ministry team that would love to lay hands on you and pray for you. We would love to... To, I'm sure some of the elders will be around too as well. And for those of you who are online, ask God. Ask him to fill you, to baptize you in his spirit. I want to thank you all for coming this morning. And I want to thank for you who are watching online. May God richly bless you this week. And may he enable you to do signs and wonders as you share the message of his grace. Amen. Thank you.